So 1 Timothy 5.22, 1 Timothy 5.22, if you want to look there. <clears throat> let's, let's actually read the context of this starting in verse 17. Um, and then I will pray, sort of set up my presuppositions. Um, after I set up my presuppositions, get into the, the talk in the main. So look at verse, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, meaning the elders, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this as it is, the word of the Lord, that you would help us in the church not to be hasty in the laying on of hands, thereby sharing in the sins of others, but that we would be faithful to the task of sending those who are properly prepared and ready to go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by laying out a few presuppositions that I don't want to spend any time trying to prove. I just want you to understand that they're behind what I'm saying. I won't prove them today. Uh, But they jump off the page quickly in a passage like Romans 10. So if you think about Romans 10, 13, here, here are my presuppositions um, if I follow from, follow from there, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so what's, what, what do people need? Salvation from condemnation. So, so here's the first presupposition I have just coming in. Um, if, if people do not call on the name of the Lord, they're damned. Simple enough? Is that just inferred right there? Okay, let's go to the next one. But how can they call on the one whom they have not believed, and how can they believe in the one of whom they've never heard? So there are people who haven't heard. Second presupposition. You got it? If you don't know, call the name of the Lord, you will be damned. And there are people who have never heard. Therefore, they can't call on the name of the Lord. Follow me so far? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? So third presupposition, someone has to tell them. Someone has to preach. Is this simple enough so far? Okay. And how can they preach unless they're sent? And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 54, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but he changes the, the pronoun, interestingly enough, from him who preaches the good news, speaking of Christ being the one whose feet are beautiful, to, to those being us in Christ's stead, being sent. Fourth presupposition, the church sends people. They send the ones who proclaim. You guys following me on that so far? People have never heard the gospel are damned. They can't hear unless someone preaches to them and they aren't preaching. How are they to preach unless they are sent, unless the church sends them? Simple enough. Now, it's really the Holy Spirit sending them through the church. We understand that. But, but the mechanism by which you are being sent is that that's visible to you as the church. So um, that's the context for everything I'm saying today. The reason I state that is because I don't want you to misunderstand the, the fact that I am not trying to decry urgency. Urgency is good. Romans 10, 13 through 17 really ratchets up, ratchets up 
why we need to be urgent about this task. There are people dying without any hope of salvation, condemned in their sins, who've never heard the gospel. And we should feel a sense of urgency about getting the gospel to them, right? We should feel a sense of urgency. Just like uh, when someone falls down, if a man falls down in front of me right now and stops breathing, or appears to not be breathing, I should have a sense of urgency to address that problem, right? Christ has commanded us to go, and we should feel a sense of urgency about it. The love of Christ compels the church to send forth gospel preachers and compels gospel, gospel preachers to go forth. We feel this compulsion to go or to send. Um, that's what we want to do with our lives. It's good and right to have this sense of urgency. And I think a lot of churches, um, to their credit, this is not me coming in and beating up the evangelical church in America. I think to the credit of the evangelical church in America, we have been um, one of the churches throughout history who has felt that sense of urgency probably stronger than almost any other nation on earth. We've sent out a, a harvest of missionaries through, in our history. Have we done enough? No. Or, or d- does our fervor for that, our sense of urgency, wax and wane? Yes. Of course it does. Uh, but my point is in, in bringing up the sense of urgency is not for me to have a session in which I tell you why the church in America just doesn't get it. Okay, That's not what I'm trying to do. I don't even know. People ask me that all the time. You know, you speak at these conferences and they have Q&A panels and you sit there in the chair and they say, tell us what the greatest problem is plugging the American evangelical church. And it, Mike comes to me and I say, I have no idea. I haven't been to any of those churches. I go to my church. I, I'm trying to figure out what the greatest problem is plaguing my church. How can I tell you what's happening? I'm not omniscient. I don't know what's happening in every church in America. So I, 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 I'm not here to beat up on it. Um, if the church lacks a sense of urgency, what I do want to say is if the church lacks a sense of urgency, then her leaders and, her mem- and or members likely lack a sense of the reality of sin and death and hell. And they also likely lack a sense of the glory of Christ, some lack of the love of God spread abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, some spirit-given boldness to proclaim him as they ought. If they lack a sense of urgency, they lack those things in some sense. You guys follow me on that? I don't mean they're entirely absent from those churches. I mean it's not what it ought to be in those churches. Um, here's my last presupposition before I move on. The Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul had gospel urgency in spades. He had that sense in spades. I don't know if we can name anybody who had a greater sense of urgency to make Christ known where he is not, Right? Why do I bring up the Apostle Paul and say that? Because this phrase in 1 Timothy 5.22, if you look there, when Paul is instructing Timothy, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sin of others, is written by the same Apostle. So what I want you to gather today as we look at the text is the same Holy Spirit inspired the same author who both writes Romans where he says, listen, I need your help to go to Spain because i got to make Christ known where he is not who has that same author, has that sense of urgency to make Christ known, also inspires that same author to tell Timothy, hey, like, don't raise up people too fast and send them out. You guys following me on that? Same guy says both things, 
Same spirit superintends both writings. So here's what I want to do in the session. First, I want to consider Paul's command to Timothy in 1 uh, Timothy 5.22. So I want to command, uh, consider his command. Second, I want to consider the warning Paul attached to that. So there's both a command and a warning. We're going to look at both parts of that. Both are in 1 Timothy 5.22. You know, if we were getting really technical, uh, the command is in 1 Timothy 5.22a, and the warning is in 1 Timothy 5.22b and c, which is just breaking it down by its clauses. But and the third thing I want to do is consider the practical. I want to look at some practical considerations for your church. So let's look first at the command. Look at 1 Timothy 5.22a, the first phrase. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, what does that mean? Uh, to, to define that, I want to define both terms there. Hasty and laying on of hands. What we know is we're not supposed to be hasty in the laying on of hands, but if you're anything like me, the first time this was said to me, I had no idea what it meant. Yeah, I just didn't know. What, what does it mean by hasty and what's meant by laying on of hands? Um, what's hastiness? To be hasty is to act in a hurried way with excessive speed. Now, but I want you to hear the next thing, because to be urgent is to act with excessive speed as well. To be hasty is to act with excessive speed without sufficient consideration and preparation. To act with excessive speed without sufficient consideration and preparation. Hastiness has negative connotations. Young men come to me and say, I want to marry this girl. You guys have that happen in your church, right? A young man comes to the pastor. In my church, I visit all the people in their homes. I know all the kids from the time they're little. They know me. Um, I know them. So when they have, they, they get excited about a, a guy gets excited about a gal, he tends to come to me and say, uh, what do you think? Do you think it's wise? You know, they're not asking me for permission unless, or they just ask me, do you, Pastor Chad, do you think it's wise for me to, and I say, well, you've known her only a week. <laughs> You're being hasty, right? That's hasty, right? I'm glad that you want to, you have a sense of urgency about getting married. You're 46. You should, no, I'm kidding, right? <laughs> I'm glad you have a sense of urgency about getting married. That's great. I understand why you do. It's better to marry than to burn with passion, right? First Corinthians 7, you don't want to commit immorality. It's like, I'm going to be single till I have a career and I've gotten a PhD, and I'm a successful businessman, and I own all the things I want. And on the way, I'll commit all sorts of immoral sex, but at least I'll have been wise financially. Right? You know, you understand, no, actually, I need to try to resolve this marriage thing um, quick, fast, and in a hurry. That sense of urgency is good. Hastiness, though, is when it's done without due consideration and preparation. So I've known her for a week. Why don't you slow down and get to know her a little bit more? Right? Why don't you ask some of your friends and some of her friends about her? Find out how forgiving she is. Does she forgive well or does she hold grudges? Because that's not going to go over good in marriage if she holds grudges. Right? Does she love Christ and his church? Does that show up? Does she say, I love Jesus, but I love to worship him at Starbucks on Sunday mornings with my friends, and, and somehow Jesus is just able to fit worship into whatever I love to do? <laughs> right? You know, or does she think, I love Christ's church and I want to be with them and Right? Start watching for those kinds of things. Get to know her. See what she's about. Um, all I'm saying to the young man is don't be hasty. Urgency, good. Hastiness, bad. Give it due consideration. That's all we're saying. Hastiness feels awfully close to urgency because both are a compulsion to move quickly. 
right? They're both a compulsion to move quickly. That's good. But the distinction between hastiness and urgency is that while both refer to sensing the importance of a situation and responding with swift action, hastiness adds the negative sense of doing something unwisely, doing something without due consideration, doing something without proper preparation. So if I, to come back to our man who falls down, if one of these men were to fall over in their chair to the floor and they appeared to stop breathing, I would feel a sense of urgency to address that. Now that man is lying on the floor and I run up to him. The distinction between urgency and hastiness becomes pivotal to whether that man lives or dies, doesn't it? And anybody who's an EMT understands that. If I run up to that man and just see him there and I flip him over onto his back and cock his neck back without any consideration to how he fell, what did he hurt himself, um, and I start breathing into his mouth without checking, is there any breath? Start giving chest compressions without checking, is there a heartbeat? Right? I'm going to harm that person. Is he choking on something? I should probably, did he, was he just at a meal? Like, in other words, hastiness is just to act ex- with excessive speed without due consideration. Urgency is to, is to act quickly, but to consider the situation, to look around, take in all the variables, and then act. Um, the hasty person in our illustration who's untrained in CPR would not slow down as they need to and take time to assess before acting. And that actually is a big difference. It's scary to slow down, though, and assess the situation. If you're in that situation, right? Scary. Likewise, likewise, when we consider the fact that there are thousands of groups of people who don't have the gospel among it seems almost irresponsible not to act as fast as we can to get it to them, doesn't it? We should act as fast as we can, but not hastily. Not hastily, and that's the distinction I want to make. If you act hastily, you will make matters worse. You'll make matters worse. So, what Paul is saying to Timothy is that while urgency is good, hastiness is not. What's the laying on of hands? That's the definition of hastiness. What's the laying on of hands? Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Well, let's begin by considering the context of the command. What's the context? In 1 Timothy 5.17, he's begun giving us instructions about who? Elders. And he's distinguishing types of elders. Now, I don't want to get into the Baptist-Presbyterian argument about whether they're, they're ruling elders and teaching elders or not. Here's the bottom line. Some of these elders are getting paid and some of them aren't, right? And if you're a Presbyterian and that's... You think that maps on to ruling and teaching elders? That's fine. There's, a, there's actually quite a solid argument to make for that. That's great. I'm not getting into that. The point is the context is elders, and the context is when you have particularly gifted elders who teach and lead well, you pay them to do that all the time. Right? That's what he's addressing. Then he goes on. Interestingly, by the way, just as a total side note, for free, no charge for this one, Paul quotes from the Gospel of Luke calling it Scripture there. Interesting. Anyway, um, so as he goes on, think about that. Paul trained Luke in quotes from his gospel, calls it scripture. Um, Just a whole side note. So he goes on to talk about what happens when elders sin. Like, well, don't receive a charge against them without two or three witnesses. Then he goes on and talks about, but if the elder has sinned, 
you rebuke them in front of all so that all may fear. This is the context. Elders who you're appointing to lead and elders who are falling into sin and, and scandalizing the church. It's context. And he says, in that context, don't be lasty in the or lasty. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's the context. Is elders. Paul's giving commands regarding elders in the church. He's speaking about those men who are entrusted with the task of teaching sound doctrine, two parts to it, teaching sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict. Kevin DeYoung came after that yesterday. Right? His first talk is, what is not the mission of the church? Today, he's going to talk, what is the mission of the church? Elders have the responsibility both of teaching sound doctrine and rebuking error. And elders who refuse to rebuke error refuse to keep the command given to them. Right? They're given both. So the laying on of hands seems to be contextually tied to this topic of those who are set apart for gospel ministry. Why do I say it? Let's look more. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. Paul to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Acts chapter 6 and verse 6, when they appoint the seven. You guys remember this? Uh, the apostles are preaching the word. Um, the Jewish widows are being cared for. The Hellenistic widows, the Greek widows are not being cared for properly. So they say, what are we going to do about this? And the apostles say, let's appoint seven men full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And they appoint the seven and they lay hands on them, setting them apart. Uh, Acts 13 and verse 3, when the church, when the Holy Spirit comes to the church at Antioch and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for me, for the task of mission, of Paul's first missionary journey. And what do they do? They lay hands on them. What's the context in all these? There's, there's a lot more to say about every one of these texts. But here's, here's what I want, to get, want you to gather. Um, the general point that I'm trying to get at is those who are set, per, set apart for gospel ministry are set apart by the laying on of hands. It's how you're set apart. That's what the, com what the church has often meant throughout history by ordination and commissioning. We lay on hands and pray to ordain them and commission them. When the elders of a church lay hands on someone, they are publicly setting them apart for gospel ministry. This is an ordaining them to an office or task that also provides an endorsement to the readiness for the office or task, doesn't it? And we're not to do that hastily. We're not to do that hastily. We're to be urgent with our desire to fulfill the Great Commission while avoiding hastiness in setting apart gospel ministers to that task. So look at 1 Timothy 3.6, another passage dealing with elders, but, but look there briefly. He must not be a recent convert. See, to, to lay, or he's going to go on to talk about it. he's going to become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You know, he's going to fall into sin. He's going to, he's going to scandalize the church. Your elders can't be recent converts. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Recent converts should not be elders. They're not supposed to be set apart for gospel ministry. Let them grow up and mature first. Right? 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Um, what, what does Paul tell Timothy? Entrust these things to faithful men. He's supposed to qualify them. Not um, entrust these things to men who you hope someday will be faithful. Who might eventually become faithful. Entrust these things to faithful men 
who have an ability. What's their ability? They're able to do what? Teach others also. They can teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You know that. They've been tested and shown to be faithful. In other words, we're setting apart and laying hands upon those who are demonstrably godly, proven to be faithful in personal holiness and sound doctrine, and we're able to teach that and refute those who contradict. That's who we're laying hands on. You might say, well, Acts 6 isn't a great example because they don't teach. Not true. The seven, we only hear about two of their ministries. Who's? Stephen, first martyr, preaches a sermon, doesn't he? By the way, fascinating. Who oversees, who oversees Stephen's martyrdom? Saul or Paul. When Paul preaches at Athens and he says to the pagans there that God um, can't be fitting into your temples, things made by human hands, he, he quotes Stephen's sermon. Fascinating. But Steve, just as a side note, think about how amazing that is just from the history of Acts. I oversaw his martyrdom, and then when I got saved, I started quoting his sermon, right? But anyway, so Stephen preaches the other one, the other, the seven that we know about is who? Philip the evangelist. Does he preach? Yes, he does, right? Any evangelist. All right, so Christ's church should not be hasty in the laying on of hands. When I first planted Sovereign Grace, and when we first started Radius, I was young and too hasty in laying on of hands. Um, I had a sense of urgency, but I was foolishly hasty. Um, I'm like a gas pedal. You know what that means? Like everything is go, go, go. There's a problem. Step on the gas. Let's do it. My associate pastor, Jason, who's emceeing this, this event, who co-planned with me, uh, Sovereign Grace with me, he's the brake in my life. <laughs> my foot is always on the gas and his foot is always on the brake and man, does that work out beautifully or I would make a huge mess, right? Um, because he's, he's slowing me down. He's not letting me run off into hastiness, right? Um, by God's grace, I have men around me who slow me down. And so as a church, here's what the error was we made. We set someone apart um, early on who's a godly woman, but we were hasty in setting her apart. I do not mean, actually, she, the outcome with her is glorious. She's still on the field, and she's one of the most godly people I ever, I've ever known. And, you know, she started off in my youth group. So the first time I met her, she's bopping in as a little 14-year-old. And now she's out on the field, and I'm like, man, she's one of my heroes of the faith, right? And she's great. The outcome with her is amazing, but the sending by us was terrible. We did a terrible job as a church. We were hasty. We moved too fast. We wanted to get her out to the field. We didn't think through any of it. Now, she's paid a pretty steep cost for that. And we've apologized to her for it. Not because she scandalized the church by God's grace. But here's what I want you to understand. Um, good outcomes does not mean you did the right thing. Right? You don't, you don't determine your methodology based on the fact that you had a good outcome doing something. Right? What does God command you to do? Do that. Sometimes, even when you do the faithful thing, you don't have a good outcome sometimes. Right? Um, if that's how life worked, well, you know, one time a donkey spoke, so that was a good outcome. Let's, let's just airlift them all over the world and pray for them and let them go. Right? It's not a method. It's God can do whatever he wants, even through our stupidity. 
You understand how that works. Let me give you a good outcome, just, just as, just as a, a glaring example in Scripture. Lot and his daughters. You guys know the story? Horrific. Horrific story. Who comes out of um, the child of, what's the, uh, of one of Lot's daughters, the son? Moab and the Moabites. Huge thorn in the side of Israel. Who comes from Moab, though? Who really matters to the Christian story? Ruth. From whom, whose line the Christ comes? So what we can extrapolate that from that is incest is good. No, that's not the point, right? That's not the point. That was wicked. God still was good. Right? So we don't take our stupidity because it had a good outcome and then start replicating it. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, we want to be faithful to the commands of a scripture. That's our responsibility. We'll let God worry about the, we'll let God worry about the outcome. Um, now, I want you to hear what Dostoevsky says about this because a lot of times young, you know, Dostoevsky, you're going to quote Dostoevsky. You guys read The Brothers Karamazov? Oh, if you haven't, you should. It should be one thing you do in life. Read The Brothers Karamazov. It's not, it should be on your list. Just go home, put it on your list and read it. But, um, Dostoevsky gives this great quote um, that I want you to hear if you're a young person in here. So there's some young people in here thinking about missions, okay? So I want you to hear this quote uh, from Dostoevsky because my concern is that what you're being told by some folks is, well, you're young, get out there as fast as you can. Be hasty, right? Uh, well, I'm not really that plugged into my church. That's okay, let's go. I don't know my Bible that well. You'll learn it. Right? I've, I've actually heard this from pastors, just to be clear. That's, I'm not exaggerating. I've had pastors, I've sat in the room with pastors to say to the missionaries, you'll learn your Bible on the field. Okay? Um, I, I haven't really ever evangelized anybody in America. You'll pick up the gift somewhere, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, you know, so there's no, there's no maturity in Christ's church. There's no dedication to the church. There's no real solid knowledge of the word. There's no growth in godliness. My wife and I don't get along. Our kids are entirely out of control, right? You know, these kinds of things. We had to actually pull a couple from going to the field because they couldn't get their kids to behave. That was a rough meeting, right? Your kids don't behave. We're trying. We've met with you for two years. You refuse to be consistent. We can't send you. You know, Aunt Susie ain't so, so happy after all these years in the church and giving all that money that little nephew Johnny is being told no to go to the field because Pastor Chad thinks his kids aren't behaved enough. You, you understand how that becomes rough in the local church? Um, but <laughs> but, but you, you need to not be hasty in laying on of hands. Right? You need to not be hasty in laying on of hands. Young people, you need to grow up. Get mature. Know the word. Be godly. Be involved in your church. You don't need to be in a hurry. Now, you need to have a sense of urgency, but not hastiness. Right? You need due preparation. Listen to how Dostoevsky says this in the Brothers Karamazov. He's speaking about a young man who desires to sacrifice his life for the truth. Right? Listen to what he says. Add to that that he was to some extent a youth of our last epoch. That is, he was honest in nature, desiring the truth, seeking for it and believing in it, and seeking to serve it at once with all the strength of his soul, seeking for immediate action and ready to sacrifice everything, life itself for it. That sounds like a lot of young people I know who are zealous for missions. Now listen. Though these young men, these young men, this 
last epic, though these young men unhappily fail to understand that the sacrifice of life is, in many cases, the easiest of all sacrifices, and that to sacrifice, for instance, five or six years of their seething youth to hard and tedious study, if only to multiply tenfold their powers of serving the truth and the cause they have set before them as their goal, such a sacrifice is utterly beyond the strength of many of them. Listen, if you can't take five or six years of your seething youth to plow it into knowing the word of God, being plugged into his church, growing in godliness, working a job, right, where you get a paycheck, <laughs> you understand? Know if you can't sacrifice five or six years to prepare for the field, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go. Church, you should not send people unwilling to take on the patient and hard work of growing in character and doctrine. I'm not saying we should only send older men. Not saying that at all. They need to be rather youthful in as much as there comes a point in our lives where language becomes almost impossible to learn. So the task we're doing, much past 35, begins to be challenging. Because I'm not, not impossible. There are people who have done it. But man, the older you get, the more your tongue settles in your mouth, <laughs> right? The more your ears are unable to pick up things. The younger you are, the you guys don't know that, right? So I'm not saying we shouldn't send young people. I'm saying we should send a particular kind of young people. The kind described in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Those are the young people we should send. Those young people. Um, let's turn to the second point, the warning to Timothy. And I'll try to wrap this up quickly. 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty in laying out of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. That second part, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Now, this is an interesting follow-up to Paul's command. What's he doing here? Well, we've just learned of the scandal caused by ungodly and doctrinally heterodox elders. That's what Timothy has to go to Ephesus to clean up. The scandal caused by these elders. And Paul's saying, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands for future elders, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Unfortunately, the ESV is not the best translation of this text. You guys understand. Um, I don't know if you read Greek and Hebrew. I do that every day. Um, and so I, I, I just want to keep my skills up. So I do it all the time. And, and when you're translating, you get to English versions of the Bible. The versions are uneven. Like one version is glorious in this book and another one's great in this. You guys follow me on that? Because translation teams are uneven, right? Uh, it's just the way it is. NASB is better here than the ESV. There are some places the NASB, NASB is a train wreck, by the way. In some places, the ESV is a train wreck. Like the book of Hebrews and ESV, just toss it out, cut it out, and get... I spent years in the book of Hebrews translating it and working through it, and I just... ESV translation, it's like, what happened to the team here? Anyway, so... Um, so they're all uneven in particular books. But listen to how the NASB says this, because I think they get this right. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, now notice this, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. In other words, the warning is that by being hasty and laying out of hands, you become complicit in the scandal that those folks bring upon the church. If they are teaching false doctrine and causing syncretism around the world, you bear responsibility for that. Hear the warning? 
you're hasty and laying on hands. They go out and teach false doctrine or cause syncretism because they weren't properly prepared doctrinally. You bear responsibility for that. Hasty and laying on of hands, they go somewhere else in the world and commit terrible sin, scandalize the church. You bear responsibility for that. The elders of your church bear responsibility for that. Would you send a man or woman to war who wasn't properly trained? Of course not. Who hadn't been tested to see if they can hold up? Of course not. Why would we send them um, to the field where Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour without properly preparing and testing them? Why would we do that? Look, look at the warning, actually, in 1 Timothy 3. Look at, look at, notice this emphasis on Satan twice. Verse 6, he, speaking of the elders, must not be a recent convert or, the, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of who? The devil or Satan. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. Into what? Snare of the devil. Satan is coming after the people we lay hands on as gospel ministers. He's coming hard after them. You all know this. If a man, a member in your church commits adultery, that's hard on the church. If the pastor does, that's devastating. There's a reason why that is. He's representing Christ to you every Sunday. He stands in a pulpit and says, I speak. Think about, there's some, there's, it's not an arrogance to be a minister, but it can sound arrogant if you don't understand the appointment of the Holy Spirit to this task. I stand in a pulpit and I say, this Sunday morning when I open my mouth, I'm speaking for Jesus to his church. That's what I'm doing. In as much as I speak the truth, it's the word of God. And as much as I don't, fall to the ground. But I'm representing Christ to his church. When that man scandalizes the church, it's devastating to people. So don't be hastily laying on hands. Right? Devil, the devil is coming for them. Second John 10 and 11, uh, Second John 10 and 11 actually pick up on this in a different way about sharing the sin. So if false teachers come to town, he says, don't greet them or, or invite them into your house. You guys remember that? Okay, and you think, wow, man. So if a Mormon comes by and it's 100 degrees and it's humid and he's all sweaty, am I supposed to slam the door in his face and not offer him any water or anything? Like just sweat it out and die, Mormon. No, that's not what he's saying, right? What's he saying? He's talking, both of these things are ways in which you endorse, you're giving a public endorsement of their work. You don't want to do anything to publicly endorse the work of a false teacher. Right? So when you lay hands hastily on someone and they teach falsely or they fall into scandal, you've publicly endorsed that. And that's what he's getting at. We can share the unrighteous deeds of others through our encouragement um, by being hasty and laying on of hands. So there are, I have a zillion quotes. I'm going to try to sum it up just by reading Chrysostom. I have quotes from Luther and Calvin and Matthew Poole. I can go through the centuries. But why don't we just go all the way back to the 4th century Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, um, he, he says it so poignantly. What does Paul say? If one who I have ordained has sinned, do I share his blame and punishment? Yes, says he. One who authorizes evil is blameworthy. It is just as in the case of anyone entrusting into the hands of a raging and insane person a sharply pointed sword with which the madman commits murder that the one who gave the sword incurs blame. So anyone that gives the authority that arises from this office to a man living in evil 
draws down on his own head all the fire of that man's sins and audacity. It's pretty clear, right? (laughs) Um, let, Let me offer a few practical considerations. Does your candidate know the word of God? Do they know the word of God? You have a missionary candidate, do they know the word of God? Can they tell you what's in each book? Can they tell you how each of the books relate to the whole? Can they tell you that? Does your candidate have tested character? Do you really know them? Do you really know them? Can they be a model per 1 Timothy 4.12? You're sending out young people. Young person supposed to be a model, an example to others in this way. Are they that? Are they that? Does your candidate evidence commitment to Christ's church? I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because Brooke spent a lot of time there already in his session what it looks like to express commitment to Christ's church. Do they do that? Does their marriage stand up to scrutiny? Again, Brooks spent time there. Do their kids behave? Right? Do they obey them? If you don't lead well in the home, why would we want you to export that leadership elsewhere? You understand how that works? (laughs) We really don't. Um, Do do they care... um, about the loss? Do they show a concern for the loss? They reach out to them. Um, if they're not doing it here, they're likely not going to do it overseas. What they're going to do is they're going to go overseas, get on the internet, and watch Netflix all the time, and get a check. And you'll have no idea what they're doing. This also ties to the next one. Are they hardworking? Are they hardworking or lazy? Um, You're going to see that in a variety of ways. Do they understand Christian doctrine? Can they articulate the Trinity? When you go into an Islamic nation, here's the phrase you're going to hear from the Quran. Say not Trinity. Say not God is a third of three. Oh, right out of the Quran. Well, we believe God is is Trinity. What? You believe God is a third of three? No, I believe he's one being and three persons. So I'm a person, and you're a person, and you're a person. That looks like a third of three. That looks three parts. Is that what you're saying? No. Well, then what do you mean by a person? I mean, you can parrot, he's three persons. Do you know what we even mean by person? Because we don't mean what we mean when we say, Brendan, who's sitting there, is a person. We don't mean the same thing. There's an analogy to it, but we don't mean the same thing. Because he's independent of me as to his being. You guys follow me on that? What's a being? You just can't throw words around. You need to know how to define them, especially when you're going to another language, right? Can they do that? Can they articulate Jesus as God and man? So did, did the father have sex with Mary? That's what a lot of Muslims hear us saying when we say son of God. Oh, so let's just get rid of the son of God language in our translations then. That's a disaster. That's heterodoxy. That isn't, that isn't Christian doctrine. But it offends the Muslims. Why don't we learn how to explain it to them then? So they don't, they don't hear what they likely got from Nestorian Christians. That's a long historical story. But the Nestorians were rooted out the Council of Chalcedon, and they headed for Arabia. And it's those Nestorian Christians from whom likely Muhammad learns about what Christians mean um, Nestorius, Nestorius's followers particularly objected to the language Theotokos in the Council of Chalcedon. Theotokos meaning mother of God. 
Nestorian set, that meant that like somehow the father was having sex with, with, with Mary. That's not what was meant. All they mean is that he is the God-man, therefore she's the mother of God. You guys understand that? But that's not what they learned. And so the Muslims then carry on that error out of Arabia. Can you define that kind of stuff? Do you know enough church history so you just don't, con you just don't keep committing the errors we've already committed? <laughs> like, we've already been there, done that on a lot of these errors. Why would you want to repeat them? We've tried some of the stupid things you're thinking about doing already. So just, like, learn how those turned out. <laughs> don't do the same thing, right? I've had to learn this the hard way. You know, it's like you grow up in a household and your parents say, I've already done all that dumb stuff. Please don't do it. I know how it works out. And your kids are basically like, no, i got to try it on my own. <laughs> you know, so this is what you're, I'm trying to tell you about church history. When you go out and plant a church, maybe you should find out what guys before you did so you don't have to repeat their errors. Um, does your candidate, um, maybe ask, ask this way, will it hurt your church to send them? In other words, will they be a loss to the church? If, if they are no gain to your church, they're not going to be any gain to the world. You understand what I'm saying there? Send your best. Think about that. The church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas. Can you imagine? The Holy Spirit comes and says, all right, we're going to send people out on missions. They won't be your pastors anymore. Who? Paul and Barnabas. What? Like, those are the guys you're sending? You're nuts. But that's what they did. Send your best. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But this is the hardest thing in the world to do, I think, from a Christian ministry standpoint. So you better send good people. You don't send like sort of the weirdo that you won't even let be a parking attendant because you're afraid he'll chase people off. You think he's going to work out in a better culture. That's not what you do, right? Send your best. All right. Does your candidate speak clearly in front of others? Right? Can they speak clearly in their own language? Because if they can't, they're not going to speak clearly in another language. You understand how that works? We want to teach them language well so that they can speak clearly in that language. But if you can't even speak clearly in your own language... You see the problem. All right. And then I, I'm going to throw this one. Are they gainfully employed? Willing to work hard? I, I know that sounds great, but the, most of these people are going to start businesses somewhere. If they've never worked in one, that might be difficult to know how to start one, right, or how to be involved in one. So um, have they done that? All right. Those are, that's, that's, that's the main content I have. There's a lot more to say, but guys have been bleeding it into all of their talks so far. So um, questions you guys have? Yes, sir. Um, I spend a lot of time with college students that are really zealous. And I think they make time for them because they can pray that they'll do something. But um, I guess just how is a, a good way to approach um, like stirring on their zeal while also encouraging them to uh, prepare without like throwing them like yeah, there's a fear that, I know there's a real fear out there that somehow will kill zeal by making them slow down. And I get that. To some degree, I would wonder if that was spirit-born zeal, if, they, if that kills it by slowing down and preparing. In other words, if studying the Bible hard and, um, and being involved in the church somehow kills their zeal for missions... They're not doing it right, you know, and, and they're not there. They're, you wonder if that's that zeal spirit born. Nine, October 1998, I knew nothing about the Bible. I was a high school teacher. I was a Christian, but I was one of these guys who went Sunday morning, Wednesday night, never bothered to crack my Bible during the week. You know what I'm talking about? I couldn't tell you the difference between Matthew and Malachi. My church basically believed that every sermon should be three ways to be better at something. 
um, and you know a rock concert right before, and maybe a skit or some kind of show that was corny. So that's what we essentially called corporate worship. You guys know what I'm talking about? We were huge. I didn't know anything about the Bible, so I was invited to a, con- a Bible conference. I heard this guy Sinclair Ferguson speak, October 1998, and as he started, I thought, oh, this is going to be so boring, right? Like when Ian starts off, right? Not because Ian's boring, but because when he starts off, he's pretty toned down. He's not like me, like big personality, right? He's just kind of, and I thought, it's going to be so boring. By the end of the message, I, I, as a public school teacher, I'd had a high school student tell me, you don't know anything about your Bible. You should go learn, right? You're right. So I, I, <laughs> I'm at this conference listening, and by the end of the message, like this Holy Spirit set my heart on fire. I don't know what else to say. I bought every book in the, in the bookstore. A year later, I went to seminary and ended up in pastoral ministry, and the fire has just grown for 24 years. Hasn't gotten less. That was just the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did I get saved that day? R.C. Sproul would joke that maybe I accepted Calvin into my heart. I don't know. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm not sure. But what, what happened that day? I don't know. Um, was I called to ministry? Right? I'm not sure. I would tell you that I wouldn't worry too much about it if you're getting them in the Word of God. Maybe one thing you could keep them doing, and I encourage people to do with young folks as they're studying, is to read missionary biographies as they go along. If you're reading missionary biographies and you're actively reaching out to lost people, the zeal is not going to die. Start reaching out to lost people around you. Read missionary biographies. It's just going to keep that going. Study your Bible. Yes, sir. Um, in, uh, as like a, an associate pastor at church, when you have a young man who's interested in ministry, but that's interested in pastoral ministry, what do you do if they maybe have learning disabilities or not great uh, scholars or good reading necessarily that they really want to ministry? Is there come a point where you just say, hey, this might be something that keeps you from yeah. ministry at some point? Is, is when you, how do you go about that? What? Yeah, so somebody has learning disabilities or struggles with reading, and you, it's like they want to go, they're zealous. I would tell you that they probably are going to fill in a support role if they're going to be in the mission field. A support role is probably going to fit them. Um, in spite of the American oft-repeated statement, you can do anything. It's not true. I would like to start as point guard for the Lakers next year. It's not going to happen. I can't do it. No matter how hard I work at it, it's never going to occur. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I can't do anything, everything. This is a hard task if you're not, if you're not able to gr- get facility in language, read well, um, et cetera. It's not for you. What we're talking about specifically at Radius, what we're training people to do. Uh, but there are lots of support roles. Just a quick follow-up question. What if, what if it's not necessarily mission, what if they're just interested in pastoral ministry in the United States, but they're just not... I would have to know more about the specific situation to answer that question. I mean, it would definitely, it would definitely be, you know, pastoral ministry in the U.S., it would definitely be a significant challenge. They don't have to learn, I mean, learning Hebrew and Greek, I would suggest they need to learn and use every day. But I don't know of any pastors who do that. I think they're, they're giving up a significant gift we have kind of an embarrassment of riches in America, of resources, to walk away from them so that you can sort of navel gaze and read, you know, 5,000 illustrations to tell your people, fill in your name and you'll be funny here. What a waste, right? Like, study hard.
pray, study, know your stuff. That's what I think pastoral ministry. Pastors don't like to hear that from me. But they're like, oh, you don't know what it's like to have to run a church. Like, I have 500 people. I visit them all in their homes every year. I, I, I have a classical school that I run that I started. I help start Radius, and I do this um, with Radius. I have another organization, this Theological Institute that I run. Um, I served on the largest high school board in California for 12 years, right? I, I mean, I have a wife and kids, and I somehow managed, I wrote a book. I somehow managed to do it and still study the Bible every day. Now, you would say, oh, well, you're enormously gifted. My point is, maybe, or maybe I'm just willing to burn the candle a little bit more than some other folks who'd rather spend more time watching TV and sleeping. That's also possible, right? So I just want to tell guys, step up, study hard. You got a guy like that? He might be able to overcome that with enough study. He might be able to. I don't know, because I don't know him, so I can't really make an assessment kind of in the, in the general. Um. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. It's a great question. How do you teach purity? It's the single biggest problem right now. That and debt are the two biggest problems facing young men who want to go into missions, porn and debt. I wish I had an answer to that question other than to point them to Christ, get them in the word, and try to get some good accountability around them. That's about all I've got for you. Um, but pornography is killing uh, ministry for a lot of men. I thank God that I was married before um, the Internet made pornography widely available or before it came onto a little device. Like when I was young, you had to be bold enough to walk into some perverted place where people will see you. And just it wasn't godliness. I wasn't even a believer. I grew up a pagan. It was pure shame of going into that place that kept me from it. You guys follow me on that? If I had this, I would have been in trouble. So I would tell you, we've got to start. Parents need to guard their, parent, their kids from this. I, would, I, don't, I tell parents all the time, the, the worst thing I ever did was allow my kids to have this in high school as a parent the worst decision I made as a parent. Let my kids have these phones in high school. I watched them disappear into them. And I controlled them. Like Apple has a family share and I can do all this kind of stuff so they can only get the apps I want. They can't have an, a browser unless I want them to. So they didn't have access to porn. That was great. Plus the guy, like the top guy for the Secret Service and Department of Homeland Security who, who, who is like currently hacking Russia's security system, right? During this Russian cane war, it goes to my church, and so he sets some stuff up in my house, and it helps, right? <laughs> like, so that, that helped me guard all that. But, but I, I just think parents have got to have to be more wise because the problem is the average 11-year-old, they've already done the study, starts watching porn. Average, average boy starts watching porn at 11 now, and they see more pornographic naked women in one day than, than their grandfather would have seen in his entire life. That's destructive. So, I mean, parents have got to be wiser and more vigilant about that. And hopefully, at that point, it's like the Holy Spirit has got, got to work as you preach the word and pray and point them to Christ and get accountability around them. I wish I had a solution that was more simple than that. Yes, ma'am. Um, I want to recommend some books. Yes. Look up Eddie Akarushi. 
chock full of scripture, but specifically addressing pornography. Yeah, and I think Tim Challies has made a lot of posts. Tim Challies has made a lot of posts, not about pornography specifically, like him writing them, but recommending resources for parents and for people on that issue. So I would go to his blog and look up what he has on that because he recommends tons of resources. Yes, sir. How would they be tricked? Um, we looked at all different sources and it was basically people pointing fingers and saying, don't do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all they tricked in one of his books. I can't remember if it was from the Desiring God, Sex and Sound of God. But he, he basically says, yeah, this is the root problem, which is, which is pride or yeah, Carl Truman actually argued recently that the root problem of pornography is the fear of death, which was an interesting argument to read. Um, and he, 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 he drove on the issue that procreation makes us feel alive, right? It's how we continue to create the species, and he drove it. That was a fascinating article. I can't do it justice at all, but um, I, I don't know. At the end of the day, we sin. <laughs> this sin is readily available. It's very enticing to young men um, and growingly enticing to young women, and we need to do something about it. I, I, I know we have to break for lunch, and I have to do a session at lunch for RTI, but I have two. Are they quick? Yes, sir. How do you counsel people who think they may be close to ready, like Ready to go, but go talk to your elders. I mean, at the end of the day, it's their responsibility. So I try not to cancel young people too often who are not in my church because I don't know them. So I, my big counsel is go talk to your elders. Right? Yes, ma'am. Um, we have a lot of young people in our church who do short-term missions for one or two weeks. Yeah. Uh, how can we I mean, how can we get these issues or um, start them on a path for thinking long term and not? In like the high school age? Yeah. I would encourage. You know, you know. So there's a booth over there called Caravan Ministries. I'd encourage you to go talk to them. That's all they do is getting high school students directed towards long-term missions and understanding the distinction between, like, you take a short-term trip, you're not really going to lead anybody to Christ in a different language group in two weeks. That's nonsense, right? So you need to, you, if you don't know their language, you can't even, you don't even know what you're telling them, right? So, and you don't know if your translator actually knows what you're saying either. There's, there's a lot to that. But Caravan Ministries, I would encourage you to talk to. Um, I would encourage you to talk to uh, Radius about their summer of service for college students because they also teach on that. Radius does. They have a summer of service for college students. Those are resources I would point you to for college and high school students. But at the end of the day, you have to show them in Scripture that this isn't a short-term, this, this isn't a short-term endeavor. This is give your life to make Christ known to people, care for them long-term, and fold them in the church, teach them, train them. This isn't just go out and spout off from your mouth and, you know, like see some pretty places and come home and pat yourself on the back. This is actually invest in people long-term kind of work. Um, know their language, know their culture, understand what you're saying. Listen, you might say, well, that sounds crazy, but, but if I go to American church and I say God is love, do they hear what John means in 1 John 4? They do not. But I use the same English language. If I, as an, if I don't understand what they're hearing, I won't significantly clarify that enough not to lead them to error, will I? 
I need to know what they're hearing when I say that phrase. It's not enough for me to say a phrase right from Scripture. I actually had to explain it because they got God wrong. They've got love wrong. Love just is affirming whatever I want to do. God is some deity who shows up when I want him to and is pretty happy with me outside of that. And is, I mean, according to Bill Clinton, we don't even know what that means. So, like, I think we just need to understand, like, we got to define all those words in our culture. Right? So... I think it's good for students to know it's a long-term investment. Start teaching them that. It's a long-term investment. That's, that's hard. The, the short-term trips are really good to open their eyes and, the long-term, and, and to point them to the long-term investment it's going to take to really do this thing. You know? No, because we've, we only direct them to caravans and radius. Who, th- those short-term mission trips, they teach them that every day as part of the mission trip. And so our young people go there. So they go down and build houses in Mexico, and every single day, Brooks Buser or Brandon Buser or I or somebody shows up and teaches every single day on, on the mission cause as part of that for caravans. Radius summer service is similar. But the teachers vary, but that's what we do. So, all right, guys, I'm going to let you go to lunch. Sorry, let me pray for your lunch. Father, thank you for um, the chance to get together for your word, for the privilege of knowing it and of making it known. Pray for our lunch. We give thanks for the provision you've given us. Pray that we would listen well to your word, um, that we would enjoy our time at lunch together, that your son would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.